Um, thank you everybody for being here this afternoon. This call is uh, going to be around 90 minutes and um, we have uh, an order of how we're going to do everything. There's going to be an opportunity also for the audience to come up. So please uh, keep in mind that the first part of the call is just going to be the panelists and the speakers. And then we're going to open uh, the, uh, we're going to open the floor for questions from the audience or comments. Um, welcome to the fourth edition of the Future of Longevity series. We are very honored to have assembled some of the biggest scientists in the field currently working on reversing aging. And on this occasion, we're also thrilled to be collaborating with Vita Dow on an important panel discussion. Today's talk is titled, The Language of Communicating Longevity. We are going to do quick intros, do some house rules, and introduce our panelists. Uh, myself, my name is Ramin Kini. I'm the founder of Mikey Guy, a discovery and recommendation platform dedicated to the education and better curation of direct-to-consumer longevity companies for the general public to get on board with a longevity lifestyle. I'm very happy to be here with our Future of Longevity team and Vida Dao. I will let everybody else introduce themselves. Avi. Thank you, Laura. Um, hi, I'm Avi. I'm a biomedical scientist and entrepreneur based in Oxford, and I aim to improve the health and longevity for everyone with all my colleagues and everyone on this panel here and everyone listening. So I, I um, advise and invest in companies that are in North America, Europe, and in China, and also work with the government agencies to develop the infrastructure for uh, longevity. So Nathan, you're next. Yeah, thanks, Avi. Um, so my name is Nathan Chang. I'm the program director for the On Deck Longevity Biotech Fellowship, also founder of the Longevity Market Cap newsletter and general partner at uh, Healthspan Capital. Um, yeah, uh, it's a pleasure to be here and uh, welcoming all our guests here. I guess I'll just uh, hand over the mic to Ariella from VitaDAO. Thanks, Nathan. Hi, everyone. I'm Ariella. I'm an MD-PhD candidate at Washington University in St. Louis. And for my PhD, I'm researching the genetics of aging. I'm one of the moderators here representing VitaDAO, which is a community-owned organization funding early-stage longevity research. Um, my main job is building good communication between scientists and non-scientists in our community. So I really could not be more excited about this upcoming panel on science communication in our field. And uh, with that, I'll pass it on to my fellow uh, VitaDAO co-host, Max. Thanks, Ariella. Um, I'm Max. I'm currently doing my PhD in Singapore, and I'm researching on uh, finding molecules that can extend health span. And at VitaDAO, my role is within the longevity working group and science communication. And with that, I give it over to you, Robert. Hi, sorry. Um, my name is Robert Zimmon. I'm an aging biology researcher with software engineering experience. With Nathan, I co-hosted a series of interviews with various folks in the longevity industry that you can find at longevitybiotechshow.com. Uh, with that, I'll pass it back to Nathan. Okay, yeah, thanks, Rob. Um, so just FYI, this uh, talk is being recorded. Uh, so that means if you come up uh, on stage to ask a question towards the end, uh, that means you can send to us using your uh, your voice recording in um, in our final recording and also possibly um, your image in any video recordings. Um, yeah, so uh, I'll just uh, pass it back to Laura to intro the speakers. Um, thank you, Nathan. I am going to read the speaker's names from uh, top to bottom, left to right, and uh, we're going to start with Matt Kiberling, who is a professor at the University of Washington, whose research focuses on basic mechanisms of aging. 
He's also the co-director co of the Dog Aging Project, a long-term study committed to advancing our understanding of aging and to accelerating medical breakthroughs for both, for both dogs and humans. Next is uh, Dr. Morgan Levine, is a professor of pathology and epidemiology at Yale, where her research focuses on approaches to discover the molecular mechanisms driving biological aging. Morgan also developed the Levine Epigenetic Clock and has a book coming out in uh, 2022. Next is uh, Margareta Colangelo. She's the co-founder of CEO Angiotherm, a company or tool to aid Java developers begin to develop blockchain. She's also contributed to various longevity publications as well as a consultant and init uh, to initiatives around the world. Next is Carl Flagger. He's an ex-Google data scientist with a PhD in AI from Stanford. Carl is a longevity biotech investor currently running a nonprofit organization, um, agingbiotech.info. And our last uh, speaker uh, guest is João Pedro Magalhães, is a microbiologist and professor of the University of Liverpool. The goal of his work is to understand the genetic, cellular, and molecular mechanism of aging across all living organisms. So we're going to move uh, to the introduction of the conversation which uh, is that recent articles in the funding of longevity science have been using a lot of the same terminology, immortality, uh, living forever, and billionaires. This conversation is intended to open the discussion on how we can change the narrative to best communicate the research and potential. So the very first question to all the panelists, let's start by asking each one of them to define for uh, us what longevity is to them. Matt, if you want to go first, please. Sure. Well, first of all, thank you for um, for hosting this this panel session. Um, so I, I guess I would say for me, I think, um, you know, the way I think about my research is that the goal is to understand mechanisms of biological aging uh, with the intention of modifying biological aging to increase healthy longevity as as much as possible. Right. So and I think, you know, unfortunately, this discussion has gotten sidetracked a little bit by what's possible versus what's, you know, likely to happen in the relatively near future. And I think um, that's obviously where we're going to go. I, I, the way I think about it is we don't know what's what's feasible, what's possible. So the goal is really to advance the science as quickly as possible to have the biggest impact on health and longevity for the most people. Um, thank you, Matt. Uh, we're going to, Morgan, please go ahead. Yeah, so the way I think about longevity is in terms of lifespan extension, but only coupled with health span extension. And that's because the way that you would achieve longevity is by actually either reversing or slowing uh, the aging process. So this is kind of returning the organism or the kind of organ system back to a younger state or maintaining that younger state for a prolonged period of time. So that's kind of how I think of longevity. And I think kind of what Matt alluded to the question of it, what the limit of that is still, you know, just speculation. And I think the, the issue is that the field has moved too much into kind of the speculative um, discussion. Thank you, Morgan. Um, Margareta. Hi, thanks for having this panel. It's really, um, I'm really happy that you guys are doing this. Um, the way I think about longevity is, um, is a, a little bit different from most other people. 
I just, I, I can anticipate what is going to be available in the far, far future. And I would like to be alive and high functioning in order to participate and enjoy that. So, um, and I'm actually a second generation transhumanist. So I am very interested in all those speculative um, conversations. However, I've written 250 articles on AI, quantum computing, longevity, and I've never mentioned any of those topics like immortality or anything like that, specifically because it's just sort of a distraction from all the hard work we have to do to get there. So um, I'm, I don't think there's anything wrong with talking about immortality and billionaires and all those things, but it's just a distraction. So, and I think there's a disconnect. People think that all of us, the people who don't, you know, who don't talk about speculative things are against those things. And it's not necessarily true. Um, it's just that there's so much, there's so much work to be done that I would sort of want to stay focused on the near term, like the next 20 or 30 years. Great. Thank you, Margarita. Carl, please go ahead. So for me, longevity is a side effect, right? At a high level, the field describes itself, you know, half of the time with the word aging and half the time with the word longevity or a longevity derivative like health span. But I much prefer focusing on the aging part than on the longevity part. And the longevity part is just a side effect. Um, aging as a word instead of longevity has some problems like using it as an adjective is problematic because nobody wants to describe themselves as an aging scientist um for example uh because it has the other the other connotation um that way so but you know i think it's better to focus on things that change with age so for example um to a rough approximation, the numbers are actually very easy. The uh, the increase in mortality, the exponential increase with aging, is very roughly to the to if you round, you can just sort of Google search this for for images of this plot. Um, but at age thirty, you have people have a roughly one in a thousand chance of dying. At age sixty, it's roughly one in a hundred chance of dying each year. Um, and at age ninety, it's one in ten. And at age one hundred and twenty, it's roughly one in one. Um, you know that's bad, and you could talk about that being bad and wanting to move in the good direction of reducing mortality without talking about longevity explicitly. Thank you, Carl. Um, uh, Joe Pedro. Uh, so, yes, uh, I mean, thank you as well for organizing this, uh, this panel. I think it's a very interesting and timely topic. Um, I, I actually have a definition of longevity on my sentence.info website, which um, to quote is the period of time an organism is expected to live under ideal circumstances. Um, I, I would echo what Carla said as well, that, what, uh, that there seems to be a shift in the field from aging to longevity. People used to say they used to work on aging. Um, now we say we work on longevity. I, I think there may be PR reasons, well, communication reasons behind it, maybe because we still don't understand well aging and so we focus on uh, longevity, because that at least we can manipulate it to some degree in model systems. Um, and I guess I, I would also echo what Matt has said of what we ultimately want is we want uh, progress to occur as fast as possible uh, and to improve uh, human health uh, and longevity as much as possible.
Uh, we may not be able to uh, hear Laura. Uh, can other people hear Laura? No, I can't. No. Are no, you no, there, Laura? She just, uh, she... Okay. Yeah, I think. Okay. Uh, um, yeah, Nathan. Um, well, I was. Uh, thank you, Ifwal. Um, has everybody had the chance to speak on the question that Laura asked? Yeah, I think we, so. we got the yeah. Oh, yes. I think yeah. Avi, okay. I think it's you're up. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> That's right. Um, so yeah, I'll ask the second question, which is a little more fun and light compared to all of the questions that are coming up this evening, and also probably from the audience. So I would actually want to know, just purely so that I'm uh, at my to watch and to read list. What do the panel members here uh, think about? Like, what are your choices and good examples of good media communication of longevity science? And it can be either factual or fictional, and it can be in any medium. Uh, so, uh, I would like to know, uh, what is your go-to thing that you send to people or watch or what, listen or whatever it is, um, that you consider good, uh, examples of communication in, in this area. Morgan, why don't you start? Um, so, so I think we, we have to actually contend with the fact that social media does tend to be the major source of news and even now seems to be the major source of how people are also promoting the research that's going on. So I do think, um, I mean, I, I've found personally that, you know, Twitter is a great way to keep up to date with what's being published and, and following um, different peer review. I, I don't pay too much attention to media, like news outlets in terms of uh, following science, um, but there's definitely great uh, people on social media, like aging doc who posts all the latest stuff. And I think the important thing is, um, that social media actually promotes this kind of clickbait, flashy, provocative, um, kind of communication. So as scientists, we need to be, make sure that we aren't buying into that, um, both in terms of how we promote our own work, but also in terms of others work that we're actually promoting as well. Fantastic. Thanks, Morgan. Uh, Margarita, if you want to go next. Um, my favorite um, thing that's ever been written on longevity was um, actually a speech that Eric Drexler gave in Lake Tahoe in uh, 1985. And it's called Molecular Technology and Cell Repair Machines. And this is the first, um, uh, first thing I ever read on longevity. And it really shaped the way I think about longevity in the future. And I think the reason it made such an impression on me is because I trusted Eric Drexler and he was so credible and, you know, he and uh, Christine Peterson started the foresight Institute way back then. And that's the, I think if people would read, you can just Google it, just Google Eric Drexler, Lake Tahoe, 1985. And once you read it, you'll um, feel really comfortable with all of the changes that are going to take place over the next uh, 500 years. <laughs> anyway, it's a great, it's a, that's what made me, so comfortable with the ideas because of the way they're expressed by Eric Drexler. That is uh, that is a fantastic recommendation. Uh, by the way, Eric happens to be my neighbor, so <laughs> where oh, I'm sitting. He's the, he's the reason that I'm. Um, I'll tell him. Uh, yeah, he's and I told Christine that he, they're the reason that I've really um, devoted my entire life to longevity because of the way I was exposed to it in the very beginning. That is that is that is pretty pretty awesome. Thank you, Margarita, and I'll pass on the message. 
Uh, Carl, do you want to go next? Uh, yeah, well, first of all, uh, a shout out. Christine is, I noticed, in, uh, a listener in the audience here right now, and I saw her post about this on uh, Facebook. So, um, so yeah. Um, so I run agingbiotech.info as a website, and so sort of my answer is up on that website. Um, I On that website, I have a list of books, a list of blogs, a list of podcasts, and a list of video channel, YouTube video channels. Um, and that, you know, those lists of, you know, four to 12 for each of those things um, is basically my answer. Um, there's, you know, and the books list is is sorted by some objective criteria to try to make the, the better, more reasonable ones come to the top. Um, and I think in all of those categories, there are some stellar um, media out there for people to consume. Uh, so, you know, I think there's just lots of good examples here um, for all those categories. Amazing. Uh, thank you for the detailed list, Carl. Um, that is going to come in very handy. Uh, Joao Pedro? So, um, I would say that the most, it doesn't mean, uh, so there are different ways of how you consider the best. I would say the, the best way of communicating longevity aging would be the one that it reaches the most people or the most popular one. Uh, and if you look at, you know, what has been the the most popularizing of, of our field, I think clearly Aubrey de Grey and David Sinclair have been the two most successful. Um, and it's quite interesting because both of them are, I would say, quite optimistic. I mean, Aubrey, even more optimistic than David, I would say, but both of them have been quite optimistic. I think uh, Aubrey's TED talk, which was like 10 years ago, um, I think that that was, I mean, I'm not saying I agree with everything on it. I'm saying it was um, influential. Um, I mean, David Sinclair's book, I think, has been quite popular as well. Um, but again, it is fairly optimistic. So I think it is interesting in the context of the discussion we're having here today that uh, the two most um, popularizers and popular scientists in the field well, maybe well, Aubrey, of course, as you know, he has his own issues at the moment, but um, the two most popular and popularizing scientists in the field are quite optimistic. I mean, Aubrey openly talking about curing aging and people live all thousands of years. Um, and David has not been very shy about being um, quite optimistic about the future of the field either, though not to the level of Aubrey. So I think that those would be my choices based on popularity. Thank you, Shuo. Um, that's yeah. I, I'm glad that you brought up those two people. Um, yeah, they're, they're currently not here, but uh, I, I'm hoping that at least one of them will drop by. Um, Matt. Sure. So um, I think the first thing I would say is, as a scientist in the field, and and I'm guessing Morgan and and Pedro probably would agree with this. It's hard a lot of times to read popular press or books about the field and not. Um, be frustrated because you recognize the inaccuracies. And I'm not criticizing anybody who's written these books for that. It's very hard to really be accurate and present the field in a way that is accessible to the general public. But it's really tough as scientists to read that and not, you know, just stop reading because you're so frustrated by the inaccuracies and the way it gets gets presented. Um, so I would say I agree with Pedro about um, David Sinclair's book, and that'll surprise some people um, because I think people tend to think that David and I 
disagree a lot more than we actually do. And, and I think we actually agree on 95%, but we do have 5% that we disagree on pretty um, uh, forcefully. So I would say David has done a great job of popularizing the field and being mostly accurate in the way he does it. Um, like I said, I disagree with some of what he puts out there, but I think he has presented a realistic view of the field. I also think it's interesting that Pedro said David's particularly optimistic because I think my public statements are no less optimistic than David's public statements, although perhaps a bit more precise in language. So David and I actually agree pretty well on where we think the field's going. And if you missed it, you know, somebody asked him point blank, do you think the first thousand year old person is alive today? And David said, no. And I think he's right. I think he gave the right answer for a scientist. Um, I would take issue a little bit with the idea that Aubrey has been a uniformly positive effect on the field. Absolutely, he brought people into the field. By and large, those people have not been scientific. And I think that I have real issues with the way that that got presented. And I think that was science fiction more than science. And I actually think it has been quite damaging. And I think we'll get to that. But, um, but I would say those are actually almost diametrically opposed sort of examples of the way that the field gets presented to the public, David and, and Aubrey. Thank you, Matt. Uh, I think Laura is still trying to fix um, her uh, mic uh, issues, but uh, Nathan, you are up next with your question, buddy. Yeah, thanks, Avi. And uh, I think this is a good segue to, to the next question. So um, discussing about this idea of, uh, you know, immortality or, or billionaires being written about in mainstream media and getting a lot of press and um, potentially resonating with certain people, uh, we, we need to contrast that, I feel like, with, um, you know, the, the broader sort of uh, scientific reality as well. But, um, you know, Matt, uh, maybe we'll start with Matt and then open up for, for the rest of the panel. But how do you think the, the billionaire or, or immortalist narrative affects progress and longevity in respect to, you know, not uh, like things like funding, whether that's, you know, private funding or government funding, but also like attracting talent to, to this field? Um, sure. So I think the billionaire narrative is pretty new. So I, I don't think that has had, you know, much of an impact yet. It's a little bit hard to know going forward uh, what impact that narrative will have. I think the, the immortality narrative, if you look at popular press accounts, you know, even 10 years ago of the field, you'll still see immortality referred to almost every time an article is written on, on the field. And I think, you know, it's hard to know what the actual impact has been. Um, from my experience in talking to, to people, uh, both in the federal government, in policy, uh, in regulatory, and in other scientific disciplines, um, I think that narrative has had a big negative impact. I think that people look at, from outside, look at the field, see, see it get talked about uh, in the popular press that way, and see that, you know, by and large, and, and I, you know, I take some of the blame for this. I think as scientists, we have not done a very good job of speaking out when our field gets presented disingenuously. Um, and so I think that has, that has had a negative impact. And I, I, I believe that has probably um, held back, you know, big influx of federal funding to, to the biology of aging for probably a decade. Okay. Yeah, definitely. Um, does anybody else want to chime in on this? 
what, what does I, the rest I of the I have panel one think? comment. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, a, a couple weeks ago, I was on a panel with Matt, and um, Nir Barzilay was um, hosting the panel, and Sergey Young was on it, you know, a bunch of our friends. And um, Nir asked me, what is, did I think is the biggest challenge to mainstream adoption of longevity? And I said, um, the way it's, you know, the way it's communicated. That was my answer. And I said, it, it's not the ideas that are communicated, in my opinion. It's the misleading um, headlines. So, for example, when mainstream publications like the New York Times and MIT Tech Review, when those journalists write about senolytics, the headlines say pursuing immortality. And that's that's not what the article's about. <laughs> so anyway, so I just, it's, some, it's just a strange thing where it, senolytics are so exciting and so interesting. There's no need to put the word immortality in the title, and it's very misleading. So I think um, that that's something, I think if you're going to write about um, a longevity company, the journalist should write about what the longevity company is doing and not always have that same title. Yeah, that, I totally agree. And it, it's funny, I, I, I think I saw recently um, an article that had in the headline, oh, a pill that will make you live forever and uh, or potentially live forever. And they were talking about metformin, which is everybody knows is a, a laughable sort of uh, premise. But uh, yeah, and anybody else, uh, Joe, Joe Pedro? So yeah, so what I would say, first of all, it's not a problem just about the field. I mean, um, if you look at cancer, Alzheimer's, any disease, I mean, you've, you made some uh, small advance in vitro and the headlines will be scientists are a step closer to curing cancer or Alzheimer's. So it's not just about our field. And that's to do with the, um, the job of being a journalist. If you're a journalist, you want to get a headline that will attract clicks or newspaper sales or whatever. And that's done by being sensationalist, unfortunately. So... Um, so it's not just a problem restricted of our field, it's a problem of, um, I say, the media in general. Now, I agree with, with what's been said, that we need to try to correct for that, that we need to um, try to sometimes point out when that is going the wrong direction. Uh, but it's not easy, uh, I would say. Uh, and sometimes some scientists certainly try to, to even emphasize sometimes a more um, optimistic or sensationalistic perspective of their work in order to get more, uh, I don't know, a higher altimetric score or whatever. So, so, so it is, I guess that there's a combination of factors that result in this state of affairs. It's not just the scientist, it's also the journalist. It's not just restricted to aging. It happens in other fields as well. Um, as for immortality as an, as an angle, as a word, I personally don't tend to use the word immortality myself, uh, unless I'm talking about cellular immortality or, or something very specific like that. Um, whether it has a negative impact or positive impact, I, I'm not entirely sure. I mean, some people say, you know, bad press is better than no press, right? Particularly for a small field like ours. So, so I don't know. I, I simply don't have enough data. I very much doubt any of us has enough data to say one way or the other, use using immortality being good or detrimental for, for the field. Can I just expand a second on something John Pedro said? Because I agree, I agree with what he said, that it's not only aging um, where you see this. I think the difference is the entire cancer field, the entire Alzheimer's field does not get viewed as not being rigorous or disingenuous 
when people talk about curing specific disease. And I think the reason for that is because we know that you can cure disease in individual people, right? I think when, when people talk about immortality, at least for a large swath of the public, and certainly a large swath of serious people in politics and science, it stains the entire field. So I think there is a fundamental difference when you're talking about people being, you know, enthusiastic about curing cancer versus talking about immortality. I think the effect on the field is completely different in those two cases. And so it's not, it's a false equivalency to sort of say that those have the same effect. Yeah, so I actually, I agree with Matt on this. I feel like talking about our field in terms of immortality moves it out of science and into science fiction. Um, I'm not speculating what is possible or what is not. I mean, people always use the analogy of, oh, you know, going to the moon or the Wright brothers achieving flight. But in my mind, those are actually parallels for things like health span extension or moderate lifespan extension. Talking about stopping aging entirely is the utmost limit. This is, this is an extreme. So that's more talking akin to talking about traveling through dimensions or time, in my, in my opinion. And yes, there's no good data on whether discussing immortality is detrimental, but to me, it doesn't make sense. I think it detracts from what we actually can do. So talking about our science in terms of things that actually have much more public support, yes, immortality might have some support in a small sector, but why wouldn't we talk about the thing that, that has much more public support, much more consensus within the field in terms of scientists actually agreeing on it and a higher likelihood of success in our lifetime. And we need to remember science is incremental. So talking about these more kind of intermediate milestones is not limiting what we might be, what might be possible one day. And I think speculating just detracts from progress. So, so there's a lot of disagreement within the field that this word immortality brings on. And, you know, in some ways that's a shame because there's so much, not only everyone here, but everyone who's not here, who's in the field in general, agrees about, about why they're in this field and why this is the right approach to health and, and medicine. Um, and, you know, it's not like any of the people here are really pushing for immortality. You know, I think Pedro's point about any PR is good PR. It, you know, that might be valid, but, but it's not like the people here are pushing for the word immortality. It's the clickbait journalists, as we said. Um, and I think it, it would be useful for this panel to sort of spend a minute discussing or talking about the main facts we all agree on, you know, about why this field is important, um, that, you know, that aging is the top risk factor for all the chronic diseases that are the top killers, that, you know, the number of deaths per day that you can trace to it is over 100,000, that, you know, or, or equivalently that two-thirds or 70% of global deaths are, are attributable in some sense to aging, and that, you know, the public for the most part, doesn't really realize that science can now interfere with that process. Um, I think we're all sort of on board for that. And the fact that it's a bigger bang for the buck than this sort of siloed sick care approach of addressing only the individual diseases once they're at clinical stage. Um, talking about the language that we can use to discuss those things, irregardless of whether or not, you know, of how, how far the field can go um, might be useful. Just to quickly respond to that, I do agree that it is the media outlets that are driving this discussion of immortality, but actually a lot of this conversation came about when I actually did a tweet calling out a news media 
um, for doing this. And actually, tons of people in the community then attacked me for saying we shouldn't be talking about immortality. So I agree, yes, this is driven by media outlets, but it seems to also be something even within the field and within enthusiasts that are that are perpetuating this discussion. And again, I think it's really detracting from what where the real science actually is and the real potential. Okay, yeah. Well, I have... Yeah, uh, Carl, did you did you want to say something or Margareta? I just wanted to say I hope Morgan doesn't feel like I piled onto her too much on that Twitter thread. Um, I think that there are also some in-between categories between the word immortality and the idea of only slowing aging that we could discuss. Things like partial age reversal um, or the like, which are not necessarily quote-unquote immortality, but which are more than simply slowing aging or you know coming as close as possible to halting the, the underlying biological aging. I'm not hurt by it. I had a fun, it was a fun debate. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Also, Carl talking about, you know, that there, there is a spectrum in terms of what, what some people expect is possible with um, uh, rejuvenation or anti-aging, whatever you want to call it, interventions. Um, uh, even on a panel that we had uh, with George Church and Jay Olshansky, there was a, even a debate there whether people should be talking about reversing aging. So uh, yeah, I think these are all things that, that we can discuss maybe if we have some more time. But uh, we, I guess uh, let's, let's go on to the next uh, question. I think Rob uh, Zimin, you had a question? Yeah, okay, my mic also slow. Um, all right, so just to, to uh, follow on to the general uh, theme of what people are talking about the last couple of minutes here. Um, so Laura asked at the beginning on uh, how to define uh, the precise meaning of the various words being used. And I think people covered that already. That was one of my questions. The other one uh, that I wanted to put to uh, the various people on the panel here is, um, so there seems to be general agreement that the headlines such as billionaires chasing mortality and similar lead to negative impressions and public relations for the longevity scene and uh, you know everything that's going on in it. If that's the case, how exactly should journalists and observers of the scene report on the fact that there really are billionaires and other high net worth, ultra high net worth types that are pursuing radical longevity? So any, anyone, please uh, feel free to, to comment. I guess I'll start. I mean, I think part of the problem here is that, you know, I think people feel like we're trying to be the word police and that that's not it at all. I, I think what I would like to see, and I'm guessing Morgan and Pedro, probably everybody on the panel agrees with this, but certainly the scientists is the, uh, when the journalists write articles about this, that at least the state of the science and where we're at is presented accurately. I don't doubt that there are you know, billionaires or high net worth individuals who are seeking extreme life extension. I very much doubt that they've got legitimate scientists in the field telling them that they are going to get extreme life extension. So I think we get bogged down in, you know, what's possible, what might happen in the future versus what's the reality of the science now. And I think what we would all like to see is just that the reality of the science gets presented accurately. And, and I suspect 
You know, when you actually talk to most of the scientists in the field, 99% of us are going to tell you the same thing. And, and I think part of the problem here is that the non-scientists, enthusiasts, don't want to hear it or, or they don't want to accept what the scientists are actually telling them. And I think that's where some of this friction that Morgan was talking about and the backlash that, that she got and that I jumped into um, on Twitter came from is that, that you know, the scientists are, are pretty unified on where we're at and where we're going, at least, you know, in the short term, nobody knows what's going to happen in the long term. And I think what we would hope to do is do a better job of communicating that so that that's what comes out in these popular press articles versus, you know, some of the nonsense about billionaires seeking immortality. Understood. I appreciate the uh, thought there. So, I mean, how would you recommend for uh, journalists or book authors to report on the fact, I mean, from my standpoint, at least on that Twitter uh, tweet storm a couple weeks ago, uh, I'm simply trying to highlight the fact that uh, there's there seems to be in the last couple of years uh, a general trend of trying to sweep under the rug or deny or use euphemistic language to hide the fact that many people uh, who are interested in longevity space, uh, including people that are expert scientists, are, are very much driven by uh, the prospect of radical longevity. And it is... It is a misrepresentation to try to say that this is not happening or to try to, you know, maybe the, the vast majority of, uh, of professional uh, researchers and academics in the Asian biology uh, community are, are not thinking about it this way. But there is a significant fraction that, that are. And trying to suppress I mean, that is, is the issue. I'm not sure that's true. Who are the experts who will actually tell you that they think that they're going to achieve extreme lifespan extension in the near future. I, I have yet to hear- George Church. First of all, George Church doesn't have a lot of expertise in the aging field. I think Pedro is probably the most, uh, the, the person who came out of his lab who's done the most in the field, and he's done a lot. I would say George Church doesn't really understand aging biology, and I suspect if you asked him, he would not say that he thinks thousand-year-old people are alive today. Well, he might say it. I'm not sure he would actually believe it. So I, I, I'm just telling you, I don't know of anybody who's a real expert in the biology, who's going to tell you that they are really striving for extreme life expectancy. And I know people think that's because you think, you know, oh, we're just scared to say it. I don't think that's it. <laughs> I think I'm so, pretty... So, so I have a question for Matt, but I want to, but I want to just make a point about the, uh, where I agree with him about the, the articles, right? I, I do agree that there's just not enough scientific grounding to some of these articles, but I want to under, I want to point out that I think a lot of the reason why you get these uh, billionaire immortality type articles is actually not trying to comment on this field so much as trying to demonize billionaires. It's very politically uh, uh, popular right now to sort of demonize rich people and billionaires at easy label. Um, and, um, and then the problem is that that has a negative side effect on the field because even long before the billionaire articles came up, one of the probably the second most common objection you hear to uh, trying to interfere with aging is that it's only going to be for rich people. And um, uh, on my, you know, the Life Extension Advocacy Foundation and Reason, the blogger uh, who writes the Fight Aging blog, have for years been putting out um, good counter arguments to the common objections that people raise to the field. The only for the rich is sort of the second most common objection after overpopulation. The funny thing about those two objections, of course, is that they're incompatible. Um, 
Anyway, on my website, agingbiotech.info slash objections is a one-page summary of some of the arguments I've read from, from those counter-argument sources and others. Um, and the only for the rich row, I recommend. It's a good, quick read. Um, but uh, so, Matt, I'm curious which side of the Steve Austed um, and Jay Olshansky debate, you know, not going to a thousand-year time spans, but, you know, Steve Osted is a respectable person in the field, I think you would say, and he thinks that the first person to live to 150 has been was born by the year 2000. So that's a little more moderate. Um, curious which side of their debate you you fall down on. Yeah, that's a great that's a great question. And yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, I and I did I, I should I should maybe soften what I said a little bit about George Church. He frustrates me sometimes because he says things that are designed to get attention. And I did not mean to suggest that he's not a, a of outstanding scientists. Um, he does just doesn't have a ton of expertise in aging biology. So let me just first say that. Um, so yeah, uh, Steve and, and Jay, I mean, I, first of all, I don't know, right? Obviously, um, I'm pretty optimistic. So I, I would not shock me if, if with interventions that we know about today, that we could achieve 150 years in a human. And in fact, I mean, if you look at what I've been putting on Twitter, I put a I put a graphic on there with rapamycin with a question mark showing 30-year increase in life expectancy, right? So, look, I'm I'm pretty optimistic, uh, but I don't know, and I'm and I'm upfront with saying, obviously, we don't know where it's going to go. Um, the other thing I would I just want to comment on something you said though, because I think you're right that a lot of this is is about you know trying to 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 stick it to the rich people, and and that is partly what drives the headlines. I actually don't think there's a lot of public. Uh, uh, concern about the field. I, I think you do see people who raise criticisms about, oh yeah, it's only going to be for rich people or, you know, it's going to cause overpopulation if we're successful. That's a, that's a, that's a small percentage of people. Most people, when you talk to them about increasing healthy longevity and pushing back diseases of aging, um, uh, are not only open to the idea, but actively enthusiastic about the idea when you communicate it to them that way. Um, I think the, the problem is more that when it gets presented as scientists striving for immortality, serious people who know something about the science get turned off by that because it sounds like snake oil. And the general public, it sounds like science fiction. So it's more a matter of um, turning people off because it's presented as unrealistic and non-scientific than I think people really having strong objections to, to maximizing healthy longevity. I just oh. quickly wanted to remind, sorry, Carl, um, wanted to remind the audience that we are going to open um, the floor for uh, the questions and comments after the Vita Dow part. Um, Carl, please go ahead. I wasn't trying to talk. Uh, oh, no, it, I it was, it was me was... trying to talk. Oh, sorry, Pedro, go ahead, <laughs> That's please. That's okay. I don't mind being confused but with Carl. <laughs> no. Yes, it's, a, it's, it's a, some would say it would be a far improvement if I were him. So, uh, um, so no way. I was just going to add, <laughs> I was just going to add that, um, you know, it's funny, most people, if, uh, I talk about aging research, they're not even aware people can study aging. So, so actually I think we have a problem, but, uh, most of the public, um, are not aware you can even study aging. So again, it goes back to what I mentioned earlier that, you know, bad press is better than no press. So. If we get more um, exposure, if we have more um, raise the awareness of the field, that's beneficial. 
even if it's via misleading, you know, billionaires are seeking immortality headlines. Uh, because what's uh, my experience, actually, you know, a lot of people I've spoken to, actually a lot of students, is that they become aware of the field of aging via those stories, via those, um, you know, hype, let's call it that. Um, but then they start searching for it. Uh, and, you know, eventually they contact scientists and they become aware of that, that really we're not, that's not really where we are. Um, and that there is real efforts to, to, to study aging and to increase longevity and healthy longevity and so on. Um, but the raising of the awareness of just making people aware that there is a field of aging research, to me, it's just, it's just a first step that I don't think most people have even um, encountered. And like, you know, Alzheimer's or cancer, you are people in general are aware that you can do research on cancer, and, um, but not so much on aging. So really, I think we are such a small field that, again, I would emphasize the fact that, you know, bad press is better than no press. Um, and if it comes from this, okay, sometimes misleading headlines, that's, that's better than nothing, I would say. So I both agree with Pedro, but also feel like I, I don't fully agree with all press is good press. I do agree that not enough people really know what the science of aging is. And it's, it's really our duty to inform the public what we're working on and why we're working on it. I think um, scientists tend to think that their work will just speak for itself, but we actually have to go out and actually do a better job at promoting um, what we're working on. When it comes to the all press is good press, I actually think there's cases where we can point out that that hasn't been the case. So things like GMOs, which got a lot of press, I actually think they, you know, that science hasn't recovered from it. And there is this kind of negative perspective that's going to constantly plague that field. And I think we need to be careful that we don't kind of paint the same picture in terms of longevity science. So there's things called this continued influence effect, which is even when things get corrected later on, the false misinformation tends to perpetuate and kind of drive people's um, perspectives on different things. So I think it's really up to the scientists and the people working on the field to make a more concerted effort to go out and inform the public what is the potential of um, studying aging the, in a realistic way, not not this hype, not the hyperbole. But like, I, I think it's easy enough to just sell, you know, would you want 20 or 30 more years of disease-free healthy life. And I think most people can get behind that. And I think that's what we should be pushing. Yeah. Before we move, oh, so go ahead. I just wanted to quickly say, Matt, to everybody that I did try to invite some of these journalists that wrote some of these headlines and still got the resistance about this being about billionaires uh, wanting to live forever. So just the context that that's the story they want to tell. I just want to say quick kudos to Matt and to Morgan um, and Margareta. Like uh, Matt and Morgan, I've I've heard recently on several podcasts, you know, doing exactly what Morgan just said. Everybody should be doing is you know getting out there and and communicating. And Margareta has been you know communicating in in other continents and and is constantly speaking. And so you know I, I you know to the extent to which Morgan, what you said, I just think a lot of the people on this panel, besides me, have been doing a great job with that. Can I, can I make a comment too? This is Margareta. Go for it. Um, so I just want to make it clear that I agree with everything Matt said and Morgan has said. Um, 
I'm, um, and I've written over 250 articles on this and I've never used the words immortality or anything like that. Um, and I think that it's just irresponsible to write about those um, things. And, you know, I'm, the place that I trust the most is the Buck Institute. And um, that's, you know, I write about them a lot and I'm sort of, um, that's my sort of, um, that's, that's the place that I believe has the um, best uh, perspective on this. Um, so I just want to make that clear. I don't want people to think I'm one of those irresponsible people. <laughs> I am a, I'm, I don't ever talk about, um, it, you know, extreme things. Um, and I don't write about extreme things either. So can I just jump into real quick? Um, I want to, I want to just echo what, what Morgan said. And, and I think we're starting to see more people, you know, scientists really trying to get out there and, and make the case in a way that the general public can understand. And again, you know, uh, I, I think David Sinclair, even though I don't agree with everything he's put out there, has done a good job of, of doing that and raising awareness for the general public. And to respond, respond to Pedro's, you know, bad press or any press is good press. I, I can't say you're wrong. Maybe in the long run, you're right. My, my concern is that particularly in biomedicine, pharmaceutical industry, clinical medical community, perception often trumps reality. And so I, my concern is that if we get perceived as being snake oil, which I think to some extent we already are, and we're, we've been fighting that battle for a long time, it takes a really, really long time and a lot of hard work to overcome that. And so my concern is that, that, that that's what the consequence of the bad press is going to be. And, and as I've already said, I am convinced just from my interactions with people at, at high levels that that has been a detriment to the field already and it will continue to be a detriment, you know, as long as we are perceived as not being rigorous and trying to sell snake oil. Yeah, and you know, Matt, um, one of the areas where it's very damaging is in investing. I know many, many people who have millions of dollars who won't invest in longevity because of all those, um, you know, crazy articles. So I think it's some um, an area where it's really hurting us is um, in a lot of serious investors don't like, you know, the the perception of the longevity industry because of those articles. Can I just add to that? It's Robert here. Uh, Margareta? Yes, yes. What about the investors that do want to invest because of those articles? I've never met any. <laughs> I don't, I just personally, you know, I've lived in, I've lived in San Francisco my whole life and I've sort of been around very, um, I, you know, open-minded people and very, um, you know, optimistic people. And I don't know anyone who likes those articles. Well, there's clearly investors who aren't motivated by immortality, but who are motivated by radical life extension, right? There are yes. plenty of investors yeah, who are who circle around the SENS community specifically more than around the Buck community, for example. Um, that that is definitely a, a big, you know, community. And also, I think a lot of the crypto money that's been flowing into the field uh, is motivated by. You know, definitely at least the Steve Osted side of, of his bet with Oshansky, you know, if not even more radical stuff. And, and to Matt's point about snake oil, I just want to point out that, you know, claims of snake oilness have been around, you know, Fountain of Youth and, uh, and 
rejuvenation stuff for a long time, right? Because of anti-aging being used in the cosmetics industry and because of, you know, always longevity and anti-aging stuff has been snake oil up until very recently because the science wasn't there. You know, Radfest is a community of people looking for that kind of thing and so are some other things. But but I think increasingly, you know, despite the short-term blip of these billionaire immortality articles, you know, for the most part, the, the sci it's been moving to be more scientifically grounded over the global conversation. And, you know, even within communities like Radfest, the, the scientists are sort of invading and taking over from the snake yeah, oil uh, people. Carl, Carl, thanks. Carl, I wanted to ask uh, Margareta to be very clear on this. Um, in, two, in 2013, Google, Google's venture arm announced the formation of Calico, and it made the cover of Time magazine, Google versus Death. This was a watershed moment in the uh, longevity, the wider longevity field. Time magazine, it's a, it's a you know, I actually have vanguard that issue. of, of this I kind have of thing. that original issue. <laughs> yeah, how, how, do you, how do you explain that? Because, I mean, the, and that, they had Art Levinson from, uh, you know, CEO of uh, Genentech uh, uh, leading the operation. I mean, uh, Cynthia Canyon, you know, the investors into Calico and, and much of the commotion around that, I, I don't personally know any of these people, but uh, I'm fairly certain that they were driven by radical longevity uh, or the prospect of radical longevity or doing something about, uh, about uh, uh, you know, research in that direction, even though, even if it has moved more in a, in a conventional sense since then. So how, how do you, like, uh, what's your assessment of this? So my, um, the area that I sort of exist in is at the intersection of the Buck, the Foresight Institute, and Sense. The Sense, and so, and there, there's a lot of people at that intersection, um, and they're very responsible people. A lot of them don't work in, um, you know, biotech. They work in engineering, so they work in you know big software companies, um, and yeah, I, I I really like that issue. But I'm also a, a realist, and. Um, and I know it's going to take a really long time. It may not be in our lifetimes that we make the, those breakthroughs. It may be in our grandchildren's lifetimes. But um, I, I, I just think it's it's how responsible people are with sharing their ideas. Can, can I just? I just wanted to quickly and um, Matt, you can go go ahead. I just wanted to quickly announce that it's going to be now Vita Dow moderating the panel. Wanted to get to that because we are almost at the top of the hour. So you can make your comment and then Ariella is going to take over with their questions. So I, I just wanted to respond to, I think, I think the point that I think it was Robert is making where, you know, he is of the opinion that, that, that some of these high net worth individuals are motivated by extreme lifespan extension. And I can't, None of us know for sure. We would have to ask them, and they may not even tell us um, the truth. So I can't prove or disprove that. Uh, my intuition is that most of these people are uh, smart enough to recognize that that maybe that's their hope, but that that's not a likely outcome for them. I don't know whether that's true or not. I, I, I but clearly with Calico, you know, the science they've done is the same science that the rest of us are doing, right? So it's not focused on extreme life extension. Um, the point that I've tried to make a few times now is that even if that's true, I don't think it's true, but let's just accept that thesis that these people are motivated by extreme life extension. The total amount of investment in the field from, from philanthropic donors and, and things like Calico is still small relative to the impact of a significant reallocation of resources at the federal level, even just in the United States. 
if you look at what's put towards cancer alone, it's about six and a half billion dollars a year, right? So over a decade, if that amount was put towards aging biology, geroscience, that's 65 billion. That's far more than the total amount of philanthropic investment um, by people who might or might not be seeking extreme life extension. So again, I think, you know, whether or not that's true, there's still a lot more bang to the buck if we can convince federal uh, funders to reallocate resources. And you're not going to convince senators and Congress people to go after immortality. You're just not. These are serious people. I don't know that we're going to convince them anyways, but I can guarantee you the immortality argument or extreme life extension argument isn't going to work in those circles. I think we can all agree on that. Don't everyone here, don't we all agree on that? We do. Can I, if, if I can add something, I agree absolutely that, uh, you know, I, I mean, I'm part of this uh, old part uh, parliamentary group here in the UK for UK Parliament. So, so I completely agree that if you're trying to get money from government and government, of course, yes, I mean, <laughs> they have the most money. I mean, they can make money if they need more money, right? So, uh, but if you're trying to get money from government, which is conservative, then you have to emphasize, you know, health and you have to avoid words like immortality, like curing aging. Absolutely. Um, and, and we all want more government funding. Um, that said, I would also point out from personal experience serving on NIA panels, um, UK government panels for grants, that government funding is, is conservative. I mean, grants are mostly incremental. Um, so, so really, uh, if we want to have groundbreaking uh, approaches, sometimes you need to shake things up um, and we need other sources of funding. So even though if Calico comes around, I, mean, I agree with Matt, you know, what you're doing is pretty much what everyone else was doing. And that's been very disappointing, at least from my perspective. Um, others might disagree with me. Um, if you, you know, Altos comes along now um, soon, I hope they do something different, something higher risk, something more ambitious than what is funded by governments, which again tends, I mean, there are exceptions, but tends to be fairly, um, fairly conservative. Um, and so, yes, we want more government funding. Absolutely, we all agree with that. But then we also want at least other types of funding, at least me. And I mean, my motivations may be a little different, but uh, I want, I would like to see other types of funding. And that's why I think we don't need really, or I, I would don't think our field should have a single message. I think we should have diversity. Uh, we need a diversity of approaches, many people communicating what we're doing in different ways. Also because different audiences have different preferences. Government officials, we have different presence from transhumanists or investors. I mean, even investors, I mean, I, I speak to lots of investors. There's quite a huge diversity of investors. Um, so, so we need, and we need to tailor our communication strategy to what we're talking to government or transhumanists or, or investors. Uh, and although I personally avoid, as I said before, the word immortality, for example, I do talk about curing aging to some audiences, to other audiences, I will talk about improving health of, of, of the elderly and health span. Uh, but I do think we need all of these messages, not just one message. We need different messages to diversify um, the sort of funding we have in the field and the approaches and ideally also have not just the government funding, but also have uh, more ambitious and higher risk uh, approaches. 
Yeah, so I think that's a really uh, smooth transition to the first uh, question that we have here from Vaidadal, um, which is, I think that what we've all what we've been talking about about how you know mo maybe most scientists in the field are not driven by radical life extension. There is this large community of supporters who are passionate about radical life extension, and we've been talking in this conversation about investors, but there's also uh, you know, a, a larger community of people that we see a lot at VitaDAO, including so-called biohackers, who are very interested in already trying, uh, you know, certain drugs like we've seen on other panels, um, you know, with Matt about rapamycin and metformin, you know, repurposing these, these drugs. They're interested in already taking up the mantle and volunteering as guinea pigs to try to extend their lives. I think that it's tough for me as a scientist to figure out how to best communicate and um, how to best incorporate these people into our community since it's you know not not strictly the scientific method. And I was wondering if anybody has any thoughts about the best way to go about that, like if there is a place for them in our community and what that place is. So Ariella, can I can I jump in? Yes, because I'm one of those people. Right. I mean, I've, I've been public saying that I've taken rapamycin um, and I think it works for me. So I, I have no problem with that. I think we need to be honest with people that we don't know whether these things are going to have significant impacts on health or longevity. And, you know, it's a risk reward calculus that everybody has to make for themselves. But I have absolutely no problem with people self-experimenting. I, I don't think personally that's going to lead to extreme life extension, but I, I'm I'm, I'm, I think we should be open to the community again, but this gets back to what Pedro was saying about using different language with different people. I agree in principle with that, but it needs to always be scientific, at least if you're going to call yourself a scientist, right? You need to be honest with people about where we're at and what the realistic expectations are and that it, look, if you want to take metformin or rapamycin or, you know, and this is beyond where I'm at treat yourself with gene therapy in some way, you can do that, but you really should have a reasonable expectation of what the risk is. And, and I feel like I have an understanding of that. I think the problem is a lot of these people, they don't really have an understanding of the science and where it's at and what the risk reward actually looks like. And so I think we can, you know, as scientists try to communicate that. Where I draw the line though, is I don't recommend to other people what they do. Right. I can say, this is my opinion. This is what I do. I don't think you should necessarily do this. And, and I have, you know, personally, this is something I struggle with as well. And I think a lot about, you know, where does that line, where is the right line, you know, where we cross from being scientists trying to communicate with people to, you know, making recommendations to people on what they should do. And, and it's an evolving thing, even in my own mind. And so I don't have a good answer to that. I don't know if that helps, but that at least I think gives you a feel for where I'm at on the on the spectrum. <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't have said it that way. No, yeah, that that, that definitely uh, that definitely helps, and I understand. And as a medical student too, you know, kind of a doctor in training, I I feel very strongly that we have to be careful, and you know, we can start off with disclaimers saying this is not medical advice, but I think at a certain point, you know, people can still understand what we are saying, even if we have those sort of legal disclaimers. And so it does come back to, 
you know, what is our like a moral or scientific or, you know, medical professional imperative to to guide people on something that's that's still uh, not in clinical practice. Um, but I want to give people um, more people the opportunity to talk. Anyone who wants to talk can just unmute and interrupt me, or if you'd rather be called on. I want to just, as a quick housekeeping announcement, let everyone know there's a little button on the bottom. It's what looks like a heart with a plus button, and you can use that to react via emoji. You can also use it to click the hand to raise your hand to indicate that you would like the mic next. Um, so, yeah, please feel free to do that. But, uh, Carl, you're unmuted. You want to go ahead? Yeah, I just want to point out if, if, you know, I think your question was, how do we let those people, the biohackers, how, how do we get them to help or should we let them into the field and, and how do we use them? Um, and, um, you know, I think that there's a whole sub part of the community of the field that is trying to work on that as their sort of explicit um you know, recognizing that there are smart people like Matt who are self-experimenting, but others as well. And, you know, one of the parts of the field that is under-researched due to various structural incentives is combination therapies. And, you know, I think that the big problem with most people who self-experiment is that the value of the data that, that they generate from their self-experiment basically just gets lost. And so there are people in the field, Kevin Parrott is one of them, who are trying to try to figure out ways to capture that data. Um, and, you know, that's a hard problem. And I don't know that it's going to be solved soon. But um, it's a good, you know, it would be a helpful first step on starting to capture the com computational complexity of combination therapies. Um, which I think we're all still a little a ways away from, but I think is where there's a lot of uncertainty on just how how far that those will you know push the field. Thanks, Carl. Does uh, any oh Morgan, do you want to go ahead? Yeah, so I I completely agree, and I think you know I I definitely think these are important people to our community, but I I, I think they're it's really important, like Carl said, to have data and to actually have. Again, not to not to push, you know, biomarkers, but to actually have ways for people to actually figure out if this is working for them. Um, I, I see a lot of people. I think the problem too is people then promoting um, things that they are saying are working with no actual evidence whether it is working. Um, but I, I agree completely with Matt that I think this is where, as the scientific community, is to be very careful about not over promising and to say all of this is still extremely preliminary and you know it's someone has the choice whether they want to kind of self-experiment but to not over hyper oversell anything that either we are doing or we are working on personally and i think also that even for the stuff i work on with the biomarkers the same thing uh there too is to not over hyper oversell what where the science is right now for sure um is there anyone else who wants to speak on this if not i think that's a perfect segue into our next question can Matt, i just quickly yeah, make, go ahead yeah make a comment i just wanted to add to, to what morgan said and you know this is a challenge that i that again i sort of alluded to this that i that i try to to navigate is i think as as scientists working in the field and you know certainly some people would call us experts. Um, when we say we are doing something that gets taken as a recommendation and, and how do you 
how do you navigate that and still appropriately uh, inform people that this is your own personal decision? It's not something that you know is going to work. And, you know, I, I try really hard to be cautious when I when I say, yeah, I'm taking rapamycin or I have taken rapamycin that to, to also give that disclaimer um, that I don't know that it's going to work for me or for you. I see others in the field who I feel don't do that particularly well, but I think it's something that we as scientists need to recognize is that we are perceived as experts and anything we say gets taken as a recommendation and we have to try to do the best we can to uh, to not come off as if we are advising other people what they should be doing because we don't know. I mean, I think that's the fact, right? Until we have biomarkers, as Morgan said, that are predictive for future health outcomes, we don't know whether these things are working for any given individual. Great. Um, Max, do you want to jump in with your next question? And then maybe we can give priority for the response to uh, Margareta and uh, Joao Pedro, since they didn't speak on this last point. Go ahead. Absolutely. So, um, and I think that is quite a nice uh, lead over from what Matt and Morgan just read telling about, I mean, now when you communicate with like a, a lot of people and they ask you, so what are the next 20, 30 years going to look like in the longevity science field? What kind of timeline or, or like optimistic or, pe or pessimistic timeline do you actually give them with what kind of therapies we can come up with, right? I mean, you already have like a few clinical studies and analytics. You have like um, um reprogramming currently pushed in companies formed. You have like small molecules in clinical trials. So um, what, what do you tell interested people? Maybe, um, show Pedro, you go ahead. So, I mean, first of all, it's, it's quite, uh, I think we need to be humble about uh, how much we can predict the future. I mean, I'm sure you're aware of this, this quotes, I think from Lord Kevin saying that heavier than air flying machines are impossible. And that was like 20 years before the Wright brothers. And he was an expert, right? So. Uh, so I think there's a very long history in science of people saying that something is impossible for it to be shown it's possible, not to, to distant future. So we need to be humble about when we, we make statements like that. Um, so, I mean, what I generally say, so based on what we see in animal models, I would say I'm fairly optimistic about um, longevity drugs in general, about longevity pharmacology. Um, so. I think when you look 10, 20, 30 years ahead, I do think we will have therapies for retarding aging, you know, nothing radical, nothing massive, because that's what you see in preclinical models. Um, so that's, that's what I think is more likely. But again, I would be very cautious about saying, you know, I'd be very surprised if this is the case. Maybe nothing is going to work, or maybe there will be um, unexpected advances, because we simply don't know. Um, so, so for example, you know, taking a step back, though, that's why I, I mean, I talk about solving aging and curing aging as as a long term goal, as something that is possible in theory, not something that I don't see happening. Certainly, not in the next thirty years, but I don't think any of us can say it's impossible. Um, so, so you have to be, I think, you have to be a little cautious and humble about how much science can progress because it can be it can be pretty bad actually you know maybe all of this analytics and and pharmacological interventions and rapamycin maybe they don't actually work the way we expect um but on the other hand maybe there's something that that really is completely groundbreaking you know um, cell reprogramming maybe something else 
that we don't even foresee now that completely changes the nature of the field. And in 30 years, we're rejuvenating people. Um, and, you know, in, in the prospect of having a dramatically increasing our lifespans, I wouldn't say that's likely, but I wouldn't say it's impossible either. Great. Margareta, do you have anything to add on that or anybody else? Um, well, you know, personally, if, if I can live till 100 and not develop diseases of aging, I'll be thrilled. To me, that will be absolutely fantastic. Um, so, and if it's possible to live past 100, that, I mean, I'd be thrilled. Um, so, I, I'm following all of the, um, you know, the, the companies that are expecting to go into clinical trials soon, because I would love to just not even extend the, the lifespan, but just be healthy till 100. That's, I mean, that, that's my number one goal. And then I'm optimistic about everything beyond that. Only 100, that's almost a humble goal for a lot of people in the longevity field. Um, Matt, you have your hand raised. Yeah, thanks. So um, I, I want to first say, I think, <clears throat> I think Pedro pretty, pretty much nailed what my prediction would be. I think some of the things we know about now will work. They may not work quite as well as they do in, in animal models, but they'll have some effect on people. And, you know, my optimistic projection is 30 years added um, healthy life expectancy. But I think it's useful also to kind of bound those with what can we realistically expect might happen. And I know people don't like to hear this, but I keep saying it over and over. If you look at the rate of progress preclinically, while we've made a lot of progress in understanding mechanisms and starting to translate, in terms of absolute effects on longevity in animal models, mammals, the longest, the, the most effective intervention was discovered in the 1930s and the longest lived mouse from a non-genetic intervention was alive in the 1980s, right? So there hasn't been a lot of progress in, term, in the intervention space over the last 30 years. And so I think that that's sort of the lower end of, of the, the pace that we can expect things to go at. The higher end is maybe something like epigenetic reprogramming will have sort of massive rejuvenating effects. Personally, I, I'm not very optimistic about that. I know a lot of people are, but it's possible it will. And maybe that'll be the kind of breakthrough that Pedro was talking about, where, you know, you'll get much larger effects on healthy longevity than anybody is realistically projecting today. And we just don't know. I think, well, you know, we won't know till it happens. But, but that's sort of the way I think about it. But I, I think that, you know, we will see clinical interventions with significant impacts on human longevity targeting the biology of aging within the next couple of decades. I don't know how long it'll take to get through, you know, regulatory approval and to actually prove that they're working, but I think we'll know that they're working probably within the next five or 10 years. Great, thanks for that optimism. Um, let's go Morgan and then Carl. Yeah, like everyone said, I think there's no way to predict what the future holds. And even, you know, these giant leaps in any field are not predicted. And I think the important thing, um, and it's kind of where the field has been, like Matt alluded, is to focus on the basic science and the understanding because we don't know where the, the breakthrough is going to come from. Um, I think the one thing we can say is hopefully in the future, if we kind of get our act together, that aging will actually become a more mainstream biomedical field where people are thinking about this and people 
um, maybe it gets incorporated more into our health field and we move more towards this kind of prevention framework versus just the treatment uh, framework that we've been in. But I would also say that it's really important to get people invested in the field, both in terms of scientists contributing to the field, but also funding now if we actually think that progress is not linear because you know any time wasted not bringing people in is going to have drastic consequences in the future absolutely carl the floor is directly yours um okay so a couple things first of all um i think matt's uh preclinical uh hasn't been that improved point is a good one but a counterpoint to that is that there's been no real incentive to try combination therapies in those preclinical models. And I think, you know, there's this rejuvenome project now, which is going to be house of the buck. And I, I think a concerted effort for robust as much as possible um, improvements in preclinical models will lead to hopefully better results there. Um, it, the, but the high level point is, you know, predicting scientific progress at 30 plus year timescales is just notably hard, right? Um, there's huge numbers of historical examples from other fields of both wild over pessimism and also wild over optimism, right? Um, people thought we'd have flying cars by the second half of the 20th century very early in the, in the first half of the 20th century and that didn't happen and still hasn't happened. Fusion research famously has been 30 years away for many, many decades. Um, uh, you know, things, things like that. And, and over pessimism, Pedro already mentioned the heavier than air flight. And, you know, nobody thought computers were going to be beating people at chess and then, and then at go as fast, especially go as fast as they did, et cetera. Um, and, and to Mark, to Margareta's point about living to a hundred, you know, I, I really don't focus on the longevity piece. I focus on the aging piece. I'm, you know, I want to go back to the health I had when I was 30 as close as possible to that health. And, you know, I want that even if I get hit by a bus at age 80 and don't make it to anywhere near 100. Cool. So you like, Carl, you're like more pushing like the real rejuvenation of the body, um, independent of the state of how you got there. Um, maybe uh, another question it's, we had like a little bit of the discussion about what is science and what is science fiction and that we should differentiate between that. But at the same time, traditional biomedical science in the last 50 years has focused on curing disease. I think Morgan, um, alluded to that as well, um, rather than actually preventing it and with at best modest progress in age related diseases like cancer and Alzheimer's disease and those things. So how as a field do we communicate a different approach of longevity science and how it differs from the last 50 years of rather unsuccessful biomedical sciences? Maybe Matt, you want to go ahead? Um, sure. I'm not, I'm not sure I have a great answer for how we communicate it, except that I think, I think, you know, several of us on this panel have written and given talks where we try to do our best to communicate it. So I think we do a pretty good job. And I think, you know, people like J.L. Shamsky and David Sinclair uh, and Steve Ostad are all great communicators at, at the message. I think the challenge is how do we get, and this is what Pedro was alluding to, how do we get the message to the general public? And, and how do we, you know, help the average person realize that there is this aging biology that we can actually, actually modulate? And I don't have a great answer. I, you know, I'm, I'm doing my best, I would say. And, and I think, um, you know, I think it's happening. I think eight, uh, geroscience, biology of aging, longevity, whatever you want to call it, is becoming mainstream. It just takes a little while. And I think the whole point of this panel is to 
try to avoid the potholes that can come up the long, the, along the road if we talk about it the wrong way. So I, I don't, I, that's not a great answer to your question, but, but I think it is happening. And I think we continue to try to communicate, you know, the message in a scientifically sound way. Well, Matt, your demonstration of it in dogs will be a huge, you know, a huge win for the for that demonstration. I hope so. Yeah. And I think even if thank you for that, I think even if rapamycin doesn't have significant effects on on health span or lifespan in dogs, the project itself can help people understand the approach and that 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 it is possible to modulate that biology. So, yeah, I, I, I hope that's the case. Morgan, with your book coming up, do you have like a chapter about that? Or how do you think about communicating the differences between traditional versus longevity science? Yeah, I mean, for me, the most the best selling point of what we're all working on is this idea of prevention. You know, it's, it's kind of shifting the paradigm away from the traditional kind of treatment paradigm that the medical field has had and that hasn't really worked that well and at least hasn't given people very good quality of life. Um, to this more prevention thing, I think it's easy to to kind of convey the message that it's much easier to keep something, to maintain something than it is to fix something that's broken. And, you know, with biology, you have these cascading events that make it really difficult that once the system gets to a certain degree to actually fix that system again. Um, but actually flipping it more towards this prevention or slowing or delaying aging, I think is a really good selling point that that's what the communication should be focused on. And again, that it, this is not saying anything about the people who want extreme longevity or extreme, or extreme lifespan extension. It's not excluding them because the only way to get there is through this. And of, of course you can have rejuvenation, but there's going to be probably, again, nobody knows, but a limit to how much a quote unquote broken system can be rejuvenated. So I, I mean, I think this is a very important kind of framework to try and communicate to the general public. Thanks, Morgan. Matt, you have a comment and then we hand it back to Ariella. Yeah, thanks. I just want to make a couple of quick, quick comments. So one is I think um, I agree with what Morgan said. And I think if we can coalesce around some common language that we use repeatedly, that will be helpful. And so, you know, I don't know if this is, these are the right phrases, but I've referred to it is 21st century medicine, and I know others have as well, or targeting aging is the best preventative medicine. I think if we keep, if we can pick a few phrases that everybody in the field who's out in the public uses, it'll get in people's head, right? So that's, that's one comment. The other comment I want to make is, um, I think we want to be, a, and I fall into this trap too, I think we want to be a little bit careful not to show too much disdain for what I think of as 20th century medicine, which maybe even saying it that way is not a great way to say it, but this idea of trying to target individual diseases. At the population level, the argument is rock solid. Targeting aging is a better approach. At the individual level, curing someone's cancer is really, really important. And we wanna be really careful that we don't talk down the importance of curing sick people, right? Because that resonates with everybody. If you've had a loved one who's had cancer, you want that cancer cured. So I think we just have to be a little bit careful not to not to approach the disease curing uh, focus with too much negativity. We just need to make the point that at a population level, 
from a public health perspective, targeting aging is really where you're going to get the most benefit. Thanks. That's uh, that. That was a really great answer. Those are really good points. I just want to squeeze in our last question from Vida Alba in very, very short, just one to two minutes, so that we can get to the audience questions. I think it's a perfect transition from what you are saying, Matt, about how we need to be careful about the language we're using, and you like to say targeting aging. So my question is, what do we think is the best term to describe our field of research? You know, we we've been calling it in this talk. Um, the longevity field, um, I've heard geroscience field, anti-aging field, rejuvenation, biotech, health span field. Um, so maybe just super quickly, if each person could say what they would cause, what, what they think we should call the field. And maybe start with Carl. Uh, I, I liked what you said earlier about how you don't like to call yourself an aging scientist because it has the connotation that then you would be called very old, right? So... Uh, what do you think we should use instead of saying, you know, we're aging scientists or scientists in the aging field? What should we call this field? You know, practically speaking, when I do refer to it now, I always, in writing, I always write aging slash longevity. Um, you know, one could argue, you know, and that, that's good enough for now. Um, one could argue that, that people don't like anti-aging for various reasons. And of course, it, it's sort of been diluted from decades of use in cosmetics in ways that don't mean what we're talking about. But um, I guess one could make the case that anti-aging, you know, that we should take it back over from the people who've been misusing it. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know. In some sense, I guess I have to punt. I like to put aging and longevity together to be to be clear about it. Um, I don't. I refuse to call it just health span, um, and I refuse to call it just longevity. And I will just say, I, let me make the, the point that I, we haven't talked much about the word health span. A lot of people sort of think it rescues the word longevity from from you know the idea of living longer, frail, and, te and in terrible health. Um, the problem with the word health span is that health is often defined pretty wishy-washy as just the absence of clinical diagnosis of disease, you know, and then you have these sort of oxymoronic phrases like you can have a healthy 70-year-old as if, as if a 70-year-old could possibly be as quote-unquote underlying healthy in the biological sense as they were when they were 30. Um, and, and I just think that's not true, right? We want to improve, you know, I kind of like the phrase prime of lifespan, you know, where prime of life has no dashes and there's a dash and then span. Uh, maybe I'll create a blog with that name. That's a that's a great answer. Um, who wants to go next super quickly? Uh, maybe Joao Pedro. Do you want to say what you would call the field? Uh, I think it depends who I'm talking to. I mean, great answer. Yeah, right. You know, it's, it could be longevity, it could be aging. I, I mean, I still like the emphasis on aging because I would like to understand the mechanism of aging, not just make people live Fair. longer, trying to understand mechanisms of aging. So I, I still tend to use more the term aging than longevity. But again, it, it depends on who you are talking to. Yeah. Uh, Morgan? I mean, I'm going to say like Carl, I actually don't think we have, I, I, I don't think there's one term that I think is particularly good. I think they're all problematic. Um, I think one other issue with using aging, although it's probably what I mostly use, is that people think of aging in terms of chronological time. And I, I think the general public doesn't understand this concept of biological aging that we refer to. Um, I like the kind of prime um, example that Carl gave, but I think as a field, we actually need to do a better job at figuring out our terminology and actually defining things and using consistent terminology because 
right now, I think it can be very confusing to people. Yeah, definitely. Margareta or Matt, do you want to um, I can go. Um, you know, when I first became involved in longevity, it was about 30 years ago, and everyone in the community called it life extension. And I really like that term. But then about 10 years ago, I think it was about 10 years ago, it people started talking about anti-aging and longevity. But in my, from my own personal experience, both of those terms have very, um, have a stigma. So I don't even have the word longevity on my LinkedIn profile. The, the way I express it to people is uh, precision health. So the, the, the term that I use the most frequently when I'm talking about using AI, quantum computing, even blockchain in healthcare, I talk about precision health. And I don't actually even use the term longevity because of the stigma. Um, yeah, definitely stigma is a huge issue and why we're having this panel. Matt, do you want to close this out really quickly? And then hopefully everyone can stay on for some audience questions. Sure. So I, I would echo what Pedro said, which I think it depends on context. So I like geroscience for science and technical crowds. I use precision geroscience often, actually. Um, I like aging biology. I rarely will use aging alone because, as Morgan alluded to, if that means different things to different people. I think if you say aging biology, then at least you're saying I'm talking about the biology of aging. And I like healthy longevity in, in certain contexts because, you know, it expresses the fact that we want people to be healthy as long as possible. I agree with what Carl said. Healthy means different things to different people as well. I, I think what this reflects is there is no right answer. It also reflects that we've got work to do around common messaging. And I think this will be in sort of ongoing discussion to, to try to get closer to what we all mean. Yeah, definitely. All right, Laura, back to you. Thank you. Um, so we're going to actually send some of the uh, speakers from the teams down so we can bring people up as Twitter spaces only allows 11 people. Um, myself, Ariel and Robert are going to stay on and uh, thank you for the speakers for staying a bit longer to answer some of the questions or comments from the audience. Rob, if you can uh, uh, just start putting people down and see if I can start uh, bringing people up. Thank you. And um, everybody who's coming up to ask questions, if you could just um, say you're addressing it to a person in particular or to the entire panel. And the first person uh, speaker up is Lawrence. Hi, Lawrence. Thank you for being here. Ask, go ahead and ask your question. Howdy, friends. Uh, first of all, thank you very much for uh, doing this panel. I think it's an important topic. Um, I really love diversity, so if we all agree, I'll be sad. Um, and at the same time, uh, I would like to uh, ask you to recognize that there is a spectrum. Um, I wouldn't necessarily say that scientists agree. Uh, we're not supposed to be the science police here. I think, uh, you know, I love the scientific method. I got into this uh, field as an entrepreneur and investor uh, with a scientific and engineering approach. Um, I, I like the, the focus on uh, approaching chronic diseases in another way. Sure, we can inspire people that they can um, feel or maybe look healthy, even if their chronological age is, is longer. But I, I don't think we should get bogged down in the, oh, humans alive today, that will become a thousand years old. That's not relevant. First of all, aging is not the only cause of death. Um, if like the lowest risk of death is as a teenager, but there's still 0.01 risk per year that you die that compounds. So even, even if there would be no aging, you would be like you're 15, your whole, uh, 
every year, you, you still wouldn't make it to 450. Um, so, so there's a lot more for, for longevity. There's a lot more than aging biology. And also at the same time, we shouldn't pretend that, you know, you're going to be healthy at 99 and then, uh, like a, like a 30 year old and then drop dead at a hundred. So, um, sure. Let's inspire people about, uh, approaching medicine in a different way. Um, let's, uh, try to extend, extend health span, um, or whatever you want to call it. Um, and of course we, we shouldn't talk about immortality or anything, of course, but at the same time, we shouldn't say that that's, that's stupid or anything. I, people can, we, we shouldn't think in, in like a linear way, um, like say, uh, talk about the interventions we have today or, or, uh, obviously we don't know where it's going to go. Like, so, 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 so. Lawrence, I, I, uh, I agree with you completely and, uh, hi, and really appreciate you coming up. Do you have a question for the panelists? I'm not sure how much longer we'll have them and we can continue audience chats after, but do you have a question for them? So, uh, yeah, the, the main, uh, ask was, uh, do you, do you recognize that there is a spectrum within the scientists as well, that, uh, there is no, um, evidence that, um, all scientists agree that, that it's, uh, it's unfeasible, I would say to, uh, I, I mean, first of all, look, Lord Kelvin said that the radio has no future. X-rays are clearly a hoax. The, you know, uh, we, we obviously can't know, uh, what the beginning of life was and, and so on. Like just because, so I, I, I wouldn't go to experts that have the short sighted, um, expertise to, 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 to have predictions. So do we, do we agree? Do you recognize that certain scientists, um, using the scientific method, um, don't say that, that, um, a, a long, well, longevity is escape velocity is unfeasible. Sorry for the long-winded. Yeah, Maybe so we can ask somebody, one of the speakers, to actually address that question so we can move on to the next question. Who wants to take this one up of our great uh, panelists? Can I start? Because I think this is probably... Yeah, go ahead, Matt. Me. Um, so, look, I would say obviously not every, not every scientist agrees. Uh, I mean, that that that's clear. I think if you look at the people who have been doing research in this field and understand the biology, there's pretty good consensus that, that, that longevity escape velocity is that's science fiction. I think we just have to say it that way. I'm not saying it's not going to happen. I'm not saying it's impossible. There is nothing in the current state of research that suggests it's going to happen in any of our lifetimes. And I, I'm sorry if that offends some people or, or they, they disagree with that, but I don't think you're going to find any of the experts in the biology who would argue with that? Maybe I'm wrong, and and you know if my colleagues want to disagree with me, we can have a discussion around that. But I don't, I don't, I've never heard any of my colleagues actually disagree with that. Um, so for now, it's science fiction, and I, I think you know we just have to accept that. Yeah, Carl so has a comment, Lawrence, I believe. Um, Lawrence, uh, just sorry, Lawrence, we're going to uh, let Carl speak, and then we're going to move on to the next question. I just think we should uh, move on to the next question, but this that the, the whole topic of feasibility of longevity escape velocity is it should be a whole other session and, and conversation that I look forward to having someday with Matt in, in more depth. Morgan and I started to get into that a little bit on Twitter in talking about age reversal and whether you would still get to the exact same state space, but it's a much longer conversation than response to this one quick question. So it's a good idea to continue for sure these conversations and panels addressing different subjects. 
Um, we look forward to having more of them, actually. Um, Christina, thank you for being here. Go ahead and ask your questions. And as soon as you ask your question and as a couple of the panelists answer, we are going to send you back to the audience, FYI. Christina? Yep, that's a, yep that sounds good. So my question is for Morgan and anyone else who wants to answer. Uh, Matt had suggested we come up with some phraseology or sound bites that we can all sign up to. And I want to throw this out to you, Morgan, because I think I get the impression you're a little more on the conservative side. So let's see if these appeal to you. When the, when the billionaire question comes up, uh, one way to answer that is to say, well, traditionally, uh, wealthy individuals do have access to new technologies first. Uh, usually it's just a benefit, but in the case of medical technology, they're actually serving as guinea pigs for the rest of us. So they're providing a public service by taking on risks that the rest of us aren't ready to take on yet. So that's one. The other one is why are we doing this research in the first place? One answer to that is that we absolutely have to solve this problem because the financial burden on the younger generations is completely unsustainable. We simply do not have enough people in the, uh, in the millennial generation and in Gen Z to finance the diseases of aging uh, over a long period of time in these older generations. The money is not there. So we have to try to fix this problem. Uh, how do those sound to you, Morgan, and anybody else who uh, wants to chime in? Um, so in reference to the first one, um, so I don't know if the billionaires are actually serving as guinea pigs. Um, so my issue with that the billionaire framing is that they're they're framing the entire field as this almost like we're in service to some people who have in in what most people would think of as unrealistic expectations um and and again i think it's fine that billionaires are investing i think it's great we need all the investment we can get but it, it's a it's always framed in this way and i think what what we were saying at the very beginning of this discussion is that, you know, there is this kind of anti-billionaire um, mentality right now that I think, you know, harms us if that's how things are framed. In, in terms of your second one, I, I think this is exactly part of what we should be talking about. Again, this prevention of the onset of disease for multiple reasons, for well-being, because it's financially more feasible to maintain our society if we can if we can slow or prevent disease. So I, I completely agree with the second one. I think the first one we need probably still more thinking on how to frame that. Anyone else from the panelists wants to also answer that? If not, uh, we're going to move uh, to so I, Go I ahead, just, Pedro. Well, just one quick thing, because uh, I mean, uh, I, I actually think what reason sometimes we may defer is because we can have different goals. And so regarding the second question, I think different people can have different goals. I mean, I, I never made any secret. In fact, I've mentioned this on my website for 20 years that I work on aging because I don't want to die. Uh, so, so I would like to uh, solve aging, to dramatically increase lifespan. So, so that's something that, you know, it's a, probably a different motivator, at least to some of the members of the panel. As I mentioned before, I mean, I don't think it's going to happen in my lifetime. I don't think we're going to reach escape velocity, like Matt said. Um, I don't think the first person to live a, hundred, a thousand years is alive yet. So I'm aware of the, where the science is, but that doesn't stop me from having um, a mission or a goal that is very ambitious, I would say. And that probably then influences research and also communications as well. 
can I just jump on that and say, I agree completely. I, I, I'm in the same boat. Look, I'm, I don't work on aging because I don't, because I, because I don't want to die, but I don't want to die. <laughs> and I, and I love life and I certainly hope I can live life forever. Right. But I, but I also try to be realistic about, about where we're at. So, you know, I'm not saying that it's impossible or that we shouldn't have that as an aspiration. Again, I think we just have to present it um, appropriately and realistically to the general public and to each other. And that's all I try to do. And, you know, look, I hope I'm wrong. Absolutely. I, I hope that there, there are major breakthroughs and I can live to be 500 or a thousand years old. We'll see what happens. In a matter of numbers and space, but thank you for your question. A fake, so I apologize if they're um, a little stringy. But I have two parts. Uh, Things like that, those are words that I think of from an outsider's perspective. So I'm a social scientist and I've been for years um, um, a science analysis. However, so I'm an amateur science researcher. So just that perspective as an outsider. But I think then this kind of goes to my second point, which is the question. Um, it's about communication and and bringing in people who are not scientists. Um, I think is very valuable um, to have these discussions and kind of really try to assimilate or try to get capture what it is that the goal is of having um, a, like a consensus for language. Like, what is the goal that this? community or this this talk is trying to have what is the goal that you're re trying to reach um when you have this ideal consensus of this one phrase that everybody uses what's the goal um what kind of um engagement do you expect after you have that ideal uh, that ideal phrase and what kind of outcomes from there do you want to see ideally right so you could say for an example um uh, you want, so you just want to know the question, what's the goal of the... So two things, yeah. The language, so I want to right? know, like, what is currently, what, what is the currently the, how much do you currently use professionals? Like, are you working with non-scientists to identify and clarify your communication goals? And to what Deb, extent... Um, Brian, I just want to, if yeah. that's your question, it's a great question. Because I want to point out that I'm not a scientist and neither is yeah. Carl. I mean, he's okay, a, yeah. know, an AI scientist. So and, um, yeah. I let somebody ask, thank you for your question. I'm going to let um, maybe Margareta, who I believe is a researcher, but is not necessarily in the field as a scientist, yeah. can um, answer that. Well, I'm just going to share one we oh, really yeah. have limited time. Brent. Yes, I'm so sorry. Your I'm sorry. question yeah. is, and just mainly identify holes that you see that that could be improved, right? Bringing in. Yeah, Margareta, do you want to go ahead and answer the question? Thank Can you, you just repeat the exact question in that? Okay, so to what extent is the medical and the scientific community using communications professionals or non-scientists in their um, goals? So and I what think... are the opportunities to improve? 
bringing in non-scientists? So I like to stay with scientists. I spend most of my time or all of my time with scientists. Uh Um, And I think the place that is um, the best at communicating um, longevity clearly is the Buck Institute. So I think if, interesting, and they're all scientists there, so. (laughs) Thank you for um, your question, Bryn and Margareta, it's great. Uh, Carl, I know you wanna say something, so please go ahead if you wanna. I I just wanna give a quick shout out. So so one question I heard in there was sort of where do non-scientists, where does the field use non-scientists to help the field? And you know, there are several organizations of non-scientists that are working explicitly on this. The Life Extension Advocacy Foundation, uh, AKA lifespan.io has worked for years on better communication to the wider public. And now there's an official political organization within the UK, within the US and there has, has been in the UK for a while or, uh, and in Europe for a while. Um, so these things are happening, right? There's both, you know, uh, lobbyists and PR people and social scientists and others all working. And, and now we even have Hollywood, right? There's more than one, um, uh, media like film in the works uh, to help popularize the these ideas. Um, I also quickly want to point out that the companies that are working direct to consumer products that are actually selling to housewives, uh, people that are not in the field, something like One Skin or Black and Age, which use biotechnology, are at the forefront of communicating a lot of the potential in longevity science. Um, with that said, Kat, I believe that the next person was Brian. If you can go ahead and ask your question, thank you for being here. Hello, yeah, thanks. Uh, so I guess this question may be best suited for Morgan. Uh, but yeah, maybe I'll, I'll preference this with you know the recent publication showing that alpha ketoglutarate uh, taken for seven months can uh, was able to show that it would reduce you know up to eight years of biological age. I guess the methylation age clock. And I guess what I'm wondering, you know, I saw a lot of comments, you know, from the lay public of, you know, do do we have to be worried about overselling these type of things? You know, I guess from the scientific perspective, you know, do we really understand at this point mechanistically, you know, what the biology means or what, you know, the underlying biology? And should we be wary of having a strategy where we, you know, we we try a treatment and we publish a finding showing, you know, a, a big methylation age change at this point? Hey, Brian, nice to see you here. And great question. And I think this is something I briefly said uh, maybe 30 minutes ago where, you know, the hype isn't just in these interventions, but also the outcome measures that we use. And I think um, I talked about this a little bit on a recent podcast that the hype surrounding biological age measures has outpaced the science to some degree. I think, you know, we should phrase these things as you know, very preliminary evidence that there's potential. We we don't know necessarily whether the measures that we're applying are truly capturing what we are hoping to capture. And I think that's where hopefully in the future we'll be able to say that with a little bit more certainty. And I think the other thing for some of these um, studies, and I'm not criticizing that study at all, I actually think it was an interesting study, is that... Um, there, we're applying one measure, and I, I will say from experience that, you know, depending on which ones you use, you'll get a different answer. So I, I think we should always put this out with a caveat and be very careful that we're not saying we have reversed biological age, the latent concept of biological age. We've reversed one proxy that we think could potentially capture 
biological age. Matt, go ahead. So just a couple of quick comments. So first of all, I agree with, with Morgan, um, but I'll just add, I think it's okay, Morgan, if you want to criticize the study, I think as scientists, we should be a little bit more clear about noting shortcomings. That study did not have a placebo group, so I would not conclude much yet about alpha-ketoglutarate um, from that. And Brian Kennedy's a good friend of mine, and he may not like me saying that, but I'm sure he would agree. Um, the other thing I would say, though, is I, I, I've been in this field certainly longer than Morgan, longer than Pedro. Uh, this kind of thing happens over and over and over and over and over again, where a study comes out, you know, it gets overinterpreted. Uh, I, I think we just have to accept that that's, that's going to happen. And the role that we can play, for at least the scientists, is again, when asked to give honest um, answers, you know, in a way that is not hopefully insulting to our colleagues, but that does note where the reality of, of the science falls. And I, and, and I would just encourage more of my colleagues to do that. Yeah, you might hurt some feelings, but I think it's, you know, it's important, again, to be honest about where the data actually are and what they show. Um, thank you for that. I just wanted to be mindful of our speakers and panelists, uh, I mean, our guests' time. Are you all okay with taking three more questions from the audience? Um, I'm conscious that it is now we're a bit past the half hour. If everybody's okay, we'll continue with the, everybody is still the, that is still here asking their questions. Thank you so much. I see some positive reactions. So, Catherine, you're next. Please go ahead and ask your question. Hi, everyone. Uh, thanks for the panel. It was really informative. Um, I am currently under training to become a physician in Canada. Uh, and uh, recently, I'm pretty new to this topic. So I was wondering what I could do in terms of advocacy, both in um, the physician community, future physician, medical students, my colleagues in the future, uh, in terms of raising awareness of pre um, preventative medicine and sort of have um this field in mind uh so this is for everyone here on the panel do you have any suggestions about uh where uh, we uh, people in similar positions that i am uh would be able to make a difference carl please go ahead so uh this is a great great question um obviously one of the things that needs to happen is the next generation of physicians need to be trained in this um, more than the all the previous generations have been, which is essentially not at all. Um, so just a quick shout out that uh, Alex Avronkov and uh, and some other folks uh, he teamed up with have created a an official online course to exactly address this, and it's designed for physicians. And I it's hard to do the link here, but if you like tweet or something, so, you know one of us will respond with the link. If you can't find it, they've actually gone through the process of making it so that you get some kind of uh, accreditation for for taking it. So so I would say the one simple answer is that you can look that up and go through it. I, I don't know how long it takes, but I think it's in the, the, on the order of hours, not like weeks and months. Anybody else has a suggestion? Um, okay, well, thank you for your question, Catherine. I think uh, we are going to go to searching for truth. Uh, go ahead and ask your question. <laughs> Hey there. Uh, thank for thank you for your time, guys. Um, for someone who is new to this space, how would how would I go about finding out more information 
um, to get up to speed and to track the progress and development of longevity research. So um, I think there's actually quite a lot of resources. I mean, if, if I can, you know, blow my own horn here for a second. I mean, I have a website called senescence.info. So if you just Google it, you'll be able to find it. But there's quite a lot of others nowadays. I mean, when I started, actually, there were very few websites on the biology of aging. Uh, I mean, I know Carl has a website, as he mentioned. Um, there's quite a lot of, of talks on the topic as well. Um, so, so actually, there's there's quite a lot of resources, I, I, I think, uh, on this topic um, for you to to learn. But well, <laughs> I can't really post a link. If there is a way of posting a link, I don't know how to do it. But if you um, contact me, DM me, and I'll, I'll I can send you some even some articles. Shall I'll DM you, and we'll figure out the posting. Um, Carl and Matt, please. Um, Car uh, Matt, go ahead, and then Carl. Okay, so um, I, I I would say it depends obviously on the level of sort of technical information that you're looking for. I think um, you know one resource I would point you towards is there's a series of YouTube videos uh, that the American Aging Association trainee chapter put together it's called Age Presents. If you just do a YouTube search for Age Presents, I think there are nine videos given by different scientists in the field. They're sort of aimed towards an undergraduate level uh, audience. So that might be a good place to start. Um, and uh, I think that'll give you a pretty good introduction, at least to the biology aspect of the field. So, so there's lots of websites to, to, this is a great question, and there's lots of ways, as, as Pedro mentioned, to follow along. Um, his uh, website, senescence.info, was an inspiration for me to create uh, agingbiotech.info. There's lots of blogs, there's lots of podcasts, there's lots of books, like we've talked about. Um, I list the blogs, the podcasts, the books on agingbiotech.info, and each on their own lists. And I also have a list of uh, YouTube channels, and the one that Matt just mentioned, um, the Age Presents as part of the American Aging Association. The American Aging Association's channel is one of the sort of 10 or so on my list of uh, video channels. Um, so there's loads of ways, and you can go into as much depth as you want by following all the links. Uh, there's also a few meta lists, which are sort of lists of these different websites. Um, you can go to uh, fightaging.org, which is a great blog, and its right panel has quite a collection of links. Uh, you can go to reddit.com slash r slash longevity, and its right panel has a, a, a list of resources and links. Um, and I will also just put a plug in for, you know, audio material, and I guess some people could be doing it with this talk itself, but podcasts and books that are available as audiobooks are great things that people can listen to in that those hours of the day with they, where their eyes are otherwise occupied because they're walking or cycling or driving or cooking or, or at the gym or whatever. And there's loads of audio material, especially books and podcasts. I hope that answered your question. There were a lot of great, there was a lot of great information. Ariella, did you mention Brita Dow already as well? No, um, thank you for giving me the mic. Yes, yeah, so like I said before, uh, VitaDAO is a decentralized organization. So we're just like this whole community and you can join our Discord and that's a great way to um, join this community of both scientists and non-scientists. And we have a lot of 
science communication platforms as well that anyone can join. We have a journal club that currently meets every other week. And uh, um, I'm in the process of getting our medium site up and running to post uh, articles about longevity science that are accessible to the general public. So uh, of course, as a representative of VitaDoubt, I encourage you to follow us on Twitter and engage with our community. Um, great, I do encourage that. And we also have the, um, the future of longevity.org that likes to bring all these amazing scientists, researchers, and leaders in the community together to discuss uh, the future of longevity. Um, we have two more questions. One is, uh, first is Peter. Oh, actually three. Peter, yes. then Pietro, then Bolek. And, uh, oh, he went back, back down. And never mind. So please go ahead, uh, Peter. Hello. Uh, it's a uh, question is in regard to curriculum for uh, non-medical curriculum at universities, community colleges. How should this be communicated? The opportunities for the future. So I guess I'll take a shot at this. Um, I, I mean, I think there are lots of ways that it can be communicated. I mentioned the age presents video lecture series that was actually designed with the goal that that instructors at undergraduate community college levels could develop their own courses around that content. And at some point, the goal is also to create um, note, lecture notes and quizzes and things like that to go along with it. There is a lack of materials for, for instructors you know, at, at the college level or even at the high school level. And I think that's actually an interesting area where there's the potential to have an impact on um, informing the next generation of uh, uh, researchers and uh, other people who will um, have an impact on the field, get get good educational material out there, you know, um, that instructors can use. So uh, th that was our effort to, to help in that way. And I think we need more of that kind of thing. Thank you. Thank you for your question, Peter. I also wanted to encourage everybody in the audience and who has asked these great questions about resources to follow the speakers and for the speakers to actually um, tweet all these links after the calls so everybody can access them and find you as well. Um, we are going to go to our next question, which is Piotr. Please go ahead, Piotr. Hi guys, um, thank you so much for the you know, great uh, conversation. So I, I had a, a question off of um, what Bryn sort of uh, touched on, which I feel uh, is important. So um, maybe a bit of a, you know, sort of question from a deep end, but um, when I hear, you know, the ongoing discussion on like, should we call it longevity research, age reversal, all that, to me, it's a really a philosophical question more than a hard science biology question, because, you know, when you consider that, as you know, we're running a bit of a circular phenomena here, a conscious agent, right, is trying to work on itself, you know, so that's to me is like such a such a difficult question to even begin to understand that all the implications of that, you know, I run into this question when I think about, you know, improving my health, right, like, or working on technology to improve other people's health. So, you know, I would like to know, how do you begin to address that question, frame it, you know, that as an independent, you know, agent, conscious agent that is trying to, you know, rewire, you know, rewrite um, themselves, right? Like that. So that that is where where I'm always getting stuck in. And if you have any sort of pointers or ideas, um, that would be helpful. Thank you.
I'm not sure if this was, uh, you know. Uh, Thank you. Um, I mean, I think we was just getting into the. Um, you wanted to make a comment about if it's a philosophical or technical question, but um, that I think in itself is another conversation altogether. I believe that we've arrived at all the questions now, and um, thank you so much for speakers, uh, uh, guests being for speaker guests being here and for taking this time to answer these questions. We do hope that we can continue this conversation. This conversation has been recorded; it will be transcribed, so hopefully we'll be able to have it, to share the link within the next week so everybody else can share it also through their different channels. I'm going to let my co-host um, say something as well as the speakers. Thank you again for being here. Ariella, go ahead. Oh, uh, yeah, thank you. I'm really honored to be including in, in this and I loved uh, listening to all of the great responses from the panel and I hope that everyone will take a minute to check out VitaDAO and join our community and if you join the Discord, I will personally welcome you there myself. Uh, handing it over to uh, Robert. Sorry. Yeah, thanks for, for uh, arranging this, and uh, I don't really have much to add. Uh, I co-hosted some interviews with uh, prominent people in the longevity biotechnology uh, community uh, at the um, longevitybiotechshow.com. You can find all the recordings there, and uh, we, we are thinking of perhaps uh, picking that up again. So uh, as the other host said, just follow everyone here and uh, investigate the various resources that everyone's providing. Uh, Matt, will it, oh, sorry, Max, go ahead. <laughs> well, also, like, obviously, thank you uh, from my side for all the speakers, for all the listeners, um, everybody who was involved in organizing it. And, uh, yeah, I mean, who's also interested, um, we have, like, monthly panel discussions um, in the future. We probably have Morgan on as well to talk more about aging clocks. So uh, feel free to join there as well, and have a good day. And for our speakers, um, I would suggest doing a call to action in what you think is the most important thing for people to do right now to push or feel forward. Um, maybe Matt, if you want to go first, we'll go in order from uh, top to uh, bottom, from top to bottom, left to right. Um, call to action for what we can do to push our field forward. So I would say, you know, probably the thing that that the people on this uh, in this audience and the other speakers can do is is really just think carefully about what you're communicating when you're when you're communicating in public about the science, right? And to to be sure that it is presented in a an accurate way, a realistic way. And and you know, I know it's hard, but but try not to veer towards too much hype and spin um, and set realistic expectations. Thank you, Matt Morgan. Please go ahead. Yeah, so I mean, thank you to the organizers for organizing this, because I think these kinds of discussions are actually really critical for pushing this forward. And again, I agree with Matt. I think we need to really be careful of the hype and not overselling. Um, but I also think at the same time, we need to do a better job at actually educating people on the part that we want people to know about in aging research. Um, just thinking about some of the questions most of the PhD students that I teach have never even learned anything about aging. And I think that's really a disservice to our field. 
that people are not getting education in this field early on or even the general public. So I think that's really critical piece. Thanks, Morgan. Margareta, please go ahead. Oh, I just want to thank all of the um, the hosts for having the idea to have this um, this panel. And um, I also wanted to say that you chose excellent panelists because, you know, Matt and Morgan and Carl and um, Joe, I read everything they, they post and I've learned a lot from them. And so you, you really did a great job at choosing those great panelists. Thanks, Margaret, and we hope to have all of you back and other voices in the field to continue this conversation. Um, Carl, go ahead, please go ahead. Yeah, just thanks to all the my fellow panelists who I'm honored to be uh, alongside and to the organizers um, for this. Um, I think that my the high level bit here on what is most important is that, you know, despite all these little differences and talking about language, really the high level bit is that the vast majority of the public, you know, I don't know, 70, 80, 90% has no idea that you can actually modify aging at all. And so the thing that everybody can do is just talk about this more, talk about it with everybody, make it elevator conversation, make it dinner conversation, you know, bring up the subject and just spread the word that this is possible and that will jumpstart all the rest. Thank you, Carl. And last but not least, uh, João Pedro, please go ahead. Well, thank you. Uh, I, I would just uh, emphasize again, well, thank you for uh, organizing uh, this event. Uh, uh, I think it's been very interesting. And uh, uh, I think we it's, it's good that I think we reached a sort of, I wouldn't say, a full consensus, but I think we agree on most issues, and I think that's 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 very good. Um, and I, I guess, as Carl said, uh, we don't really well. Most people are not really aware of research on aging. So, so my main advice is, yeah, talk to talk to family, friends, uh, people you've just met, uh, enemies. It doesn't matter. Just talk to others about uh, what we're doing on aging, that we can manipulate aging, and. Uh, and hopefully that will um, bring even more dynamism to, to the field. I thank you so much again to all of the panelists and the moderators and our audience members. Uh, we really appreciate this extremely productive conversation. Thank you for staying on even a half hour longer than we planned. We appreciate that so, so much. And I hope that we can have another panel like this in the future. This was very fun and very informative. Um, anything else you want to say before we close out, Laura? Oh, and I put more links that everyone was talking about in the uh, um, right here in the space. And we can add even more later. If any of the panelists want to DM me anything, I can add them to that thread or you can add them yourself. Uh, back to you, Laura. Thank you so much again. Uh, remember to remember uh, to follow all our guest speakers. They are going to be sharing great information as well as um, Ariella and other members of the future of longevity. There are a lot of amazing resources. There's a lot of ways to learn and get involved in this industry, even if you're not a scientist or researcher. Um, thank you so much, everybody, for your time. We really appreciate it, and we do hope that this was constructive and to continue this conversation. A lovely rest of your week and um, see you all soon again. Thank you.